What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, the news is flying fast and furious. The Inspector General of the Department of Justice is now investigating whether any members of the Department of Justice, and this would be that like number two or three guy who was willing to conspire with Trump to use the power of the federal government to force or intimidate Georgia into changing the outcome of the election in Georgia. And that's the one we know about. We don't know about what they might have tried to do in Arizona or in Michigan or in Wisconsin or in Pennsylvania. But I think you can safely predict if Donald Trump was doing this in Georgia, knowing that he needed at least two other states, that he wasn't just doing it in Georgia. But the DOJ is now looking into this, and that is good news. On the coronavirus front, this is interesting news. The Washington Post had an article, the first paragraph of which said that the British variant, this B117 variant of the coronavirus, is not controlled by the normal measures that we use. In other words, masks and social distancing are not as effective against this virus. Now, nobody's exactly certain why, but the best speculation that I'm reading over, like a British medical journal, where there's a really fascinating and well-participated in conversation among physicians about this, is that the alterations to the spike protein, which is how this virus attaches itself to the angiotensin receptor sites in our blood vessels, which is how it invades the human body, that those mutations to that spike protein make it much easier. Normally, you know, you'd have to have hundreds or thousands of viruses kind of wandering past human tissues, and one of them or a small number of them might link in or whatever the critical number is to overwhelm the immune system. That's still an unknown also. Apparently, this spike protein, it's more like Velcro. You know, it's much more effective at sticking to us. And so it takes a whole lot less of it That's one theory. The other theory is that when people get this, that they're expelling much larger amounts of virus in the two days before they show any symptoms. That's when apparently people are maximally infectious. So there's that. And Boris Johnson said that it looks like it might be as much as 30% more lethal. Again, that's still stuff they're trying to sort out. But now there's this new one out of South Africa, another mutation of this virus. These mutations are all happening, by the way, because so many hundreds of millions of people, maybe even a billion people, actually have this virus. And you get billions or trillions of viruses in your body, and they're constantly mutating, and some of those mutations are successful and effective. And so anyhow, there's this new one out of South Africa. Both the South African variant and the British variant have shown up in the UK, by the way. The South African variant appears to be able to infect people who have already had the normal variant. In other words, you can get infected again, and it also appears that it may be more potent. That's the bad news. The good news is, this is the headline over at CNBC, Moderna says it's working on COVID booster shot for variant in South Africa says current vaccine provides some protection. 
you know, what we're seeing here, and nobody is talking about this, but I think it, it deserves mention, is nature is fighting back. Now, it's not a conscious... Well, maybe it is. I mean, you know, if you accept James Lovelock's Gaia hypothesis, <laughs> you know, the planet is a conscious entity. But let's assume for a moment that it's, that it's just math. It's just science. That as the human population increases and we start pushing into parts of the world where we previously never went, the wild areas, we start flushing out of those places species of bats and other animals, civet cats and other animals that are carrying diseases that we have not been exposed to in the past, like this particular SARS-2 coronavirus. And if nature is fighting back, maybe we should take the clue and start reducing our footprint on this planet, start getting our population under control, start changing the way that we mine and exploit the planet, start changing our food production systems, things like that. Seems like a good idea. CPAC, the guy who runs CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference. Now, I went to CPAC and broadcasted from CPAC every year for at least a decade. It was always great fun because one of my favorite things is debating conservatives. You know, the last couple of months, or the last six months, really, it has been almost impossible. Sean has been trying as hard as she can to book conservatives out of this program because nobody wants to debate me. Because they're like, we can't defend what we, you know, Trump, really? Republican Party? But the guy who's the chair of the American Conservative Union that runs CPAC, Matt Schlapp, uh, apparently, this is according to Mediaite, was paid $750,000 by a guy named Parker Petty, P-E-T-I-T, to uh, get him a pardon from Donald Trump. Now, we don't know how much of that money ended up with Donald Trump. Probably not much of it because Trump never gave him the pardon. But now they're starting to ask questions about the rest of these pardons. Meanwhile, Freedom Works, the group that brought us the Tea Party, you know, the, that came into being as a result of the Koch network and a few billionaires wanting to make this thing happen, I uh, got another email from them. H.R. 1, the so-called For the People Act, better known as the Gag Act, introduced by John Sarbanes, would destroy political free speech and give leftist federal government officials massive new control over our elections. Right, what are their specific arguments? What are the things that they're freaked out about? Number one, donor doxing. What the HR1 will do is require nonprofits that dump tens and hundreds of millions of dollars into elections to tell the public who their donors are. Oh, the inhumanity. Oh, my God. Billionaires should be able to hide behind anonymity, and nobody should know that they're influencing elections, right? I mean, I gave some money to Joe Biden's uh, campaign. I gave money to several campaigns. It's all a matter of public record. You can look it up. But if a billionaire gives money to a dark money group, you know, like the foundation associated with Freedom Works, they don't want to tell you who they are. And they're all freaked out about this. He says, this would leave thousands of patriotic Americans, well, it's actually probably hundreds, you know, the billionaires and the multimillionaires. This would leave thousands of patriotic, notice they're not saying hundreds of thousands or millions, because it's a small number of wealthy right-wing donors. This would leave thousands of patriotic Americans open to harassment and intimidation from Antifa and other violent left-wing groups and organizations. Right. They go on to say the Gag Act would, this is the For the People Act, H.R. 1, prohibit any restrictions on who can vote by mail. Well, that's not altogether true. If you're not a citizen and you can't legally vote, you can't vote by mail. It would weaken voter ID laws currently on the books. Oh, gee, we're going to let students at at, uh, state colleges use their student ID to vote. It would take power away from state legislatures to redistrict and put it in the hands of so-called independent commissions. That's a good idea. It would end the automatic purging of voters from voter rolls. Wow. And it would force PAC taxpayers to pay for politicians' political campaigns. Hey, it sounds like a plan. It's Tom Hartman program. The more I hear from uh, Freedom Works and these other right-wing groups, the more I like this HR1 thing. Anyhow, we'll pick up your calls in just a minute. Stick around.
Paul in Sparta, Michigan. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Uh, I'm in Wisconsin, but that's cool. Uh, oh, Wisconsin. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I, I haven't been able to get to the doctor in a year, eye doctor in a year <laughs> to get my, my glasses upgraded. <laughs> uh, I just want to say I'm not willing to play nice with these people, any Republican. Mm. When these Republicans yeah. walked into Congress and stepped over GIs laying on the floor in Congress, in the garage, and they go in and beat their chest and say, oh, my gosh, we got all these GIs laying here. This is just not right. You brought them here by lying to the American mm-hmm. public for two months that there was a lie going on, that there was a steal. Yep. You, these people should be at home working. Now, my second point is, I'm with you. I'm an Air Force veteran. I have three children that are Air Force veterans. Two of them are still in. We are patriots. Any person that stepped further than I can go legally on January 6th into the Capitol should be charged with treason. They should be a traitor. They should be charged with a felony. Hopefully, they'll be convicted as a felon and then take their guns away. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And one of the arguments that they're making is that, this was in this Washington Post piece, was that while there were, you know, there was Zip Tie Guy and there were the people who were trying to hang Mike Pence and the people who were looking to kill Nancy Pelosi, there were also a lot of people who just kind of came into the Capitol building and wandered around going, whoa, look at that, and that therefore maybe they should get a lesser penalty. Well, it's still criminal trespass. No, no mercy. No mercy. You yeah. tried to take my yeah, home I'm with from you. me. Yeah, I'm going to hang with up, you. but thank I'm with you, Tom. You. Okay, yeah, thanks a lot, Paul. Good to hear from you. Mark in Sacramento. Hey, Mark, what's up? Hi, Tom. I got kind of a question for you. As I understand that the article of impeachment goes to the Senate that charges Trump yeah. with inciting an insurrection, and I was wondering, is there a way, like, a senator could oppose the swearing-in of Cruz and Hawley as jurors in that case? as I believe they were participating in inciting that insurrection. Just wondering, am I crazy? In fact, there's discussion of this. I haven't heard any discussion of it from any of the senators themselves. But among the pundit class, there is some concern that there are a bunch of senators who are going to sit in judgment of a criminal conspiracy that they themselves were parts of. I mean, and I thought that, that my co-conspirators you know, sit on my trial, too. I mean, yeah, yeah. there's six of us who robbed the bank. I'd like five of us to be on the jury, please. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's like, really? Really? You're going to try and pull that crap on me? Yeah, it really is. And it's not just Cruz and Hawley, by the way. Did you see Rand Paul? He's still trying to push the voter fraud lie, the big lie. Yes, there's a number of others that I think would qualify. Cruz and Hawley just come to mind quickly, but there are others others that I believe. We're the ringleaders, but now Rand Paul is trying to establish his uh, prominence in this movement. This is just so wrong. But, you know, the reason why, of course, Mark, is because right-wing talk radio and Fox News are now picking up their cause. So now they feel like they got the wind behind them in their sails, you know. Mark, thank you for the call. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out 
for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And welcome back. On the line with us is our old buddy, Lori Wallach, the executive director of Public Citizens Global Trade Watch. Tradewatch.org is the website or citizen.org slash trade. And Lori can be tweeted at PCGTW or Wallach, W-A-L-L-A-C-H, Lori, L-O-R-I. Lori, welcome back. So we're looking at this Buy America thing. I wrote an op-ed about this saying, you know, we need to go back to FDR's Buy America program that, you know, ever since Reagan, the presidents have been issuing waivers like jelly beans. And then Biden comes out and says, this is what he's going to do. It blew my mind. Is it as good as it seems? Well, it's certainly a good first step. The actual executive order doesn't actually fix the problems. It lays out about... 60% of the territory they need to cover, and it lays out things they promise to do. So we'll all have to stay on top of the story to make sure that the declaration Mm. of intention to do it translates into real change. Yeah. So you also note that U.S. trade policies, you know, this really started to go downhill during the Clinton administration, and Bill Clinton gets roundly blamed for it. But actually, NAFTA and the WTO treaties, the GATT treaties, these were negotiated during the Reagan and Bush administrations. And Clinton just brought these policies to fruition, if my understanding is correct. Correct me, please, if I'm wrong. And disproportionately, Minorities are the ones who lost their jobs, principally African-American and Hispanic people. I would assume women as well, even though women are the majority numerically. But that disproportionately minorities were harmed. And not only that, but not only were they more likely to lose their jobs, but when they do get new jobs, even with the same level of education, they're more likely to have lower pay scales. Do I have all that right? You do, and that is the finding of our new report that is called Trade discrimination. And it, you can see it on our website, which is tradewatch.org. What we decided to do is something that hadn't been done before, which is we wanted to figure out what were the impacts, particularly on workers of color, of these trade agreements. So we took the data that um, laid out what sectors of the economy were the hardest hit. We found 10 manufacturing sectors that have seen the most job loss, the worst shift in a bigger, bigger, bigger trade deficit. And we looked in the service sector and different sectors, for instance, call centers. And then we ran the demographic data. And gruesomely, we found out that in nine of the 10 sectors that were the hardest hit, Uh, by trade, both Latino and black workers were disproportionately represented relative to their share of the working population, and that the call center industry, which has had mass, broad outsourcing, largely to the Philippines, where there are no labor rights, has been people of color at an enormously disproportionate percentage. Then we start looking at the states. Certain states have gotten particularly slammed, Texas, New York, California, and we looked at where demographically people of color were living. And the states that were the least impacted are the whitest states. The states that were the heaviest impacted were the states with the most people of color. And then, as you mentioned, we looked at the income inequality data, and we found a larger contribution when rehired to lower wages for people of color losing jobs to trade. But, Tom, maybe the worst thing we found was that actually, regardless of looking at education levels, et cetera, black and Latino workers had a lesser likelihood of getting rehired at all. 
And so that's just plain out discrimination. Mm-hmm. That's not about the trade agreements. That's about racism. Well, that was my follow-up question, Laurie, is to what extent is this a function of basically LIFO, last in, first out, that minorities have been only in the last few decades had available to them in a really broad way good-paying jobs and careers and things that had historically been blocked, I mean, up until the 1960s, blocked by law in many cases from people of color. And so you've got just a couple of generations coming into this, last in, so when it starts falling apart, first out, And would that not be true of any kind of policy that simply caused millions of people to lose their jobs as these trade policies that Reagan and Bush negotiated did? That's what we thought at first, and that was sort of a hypothesis we were testing. What we found instead is that actually it was the impact of losing 65,000 manufacturing facilities under these trade agreements in the last 25 years. It was losing 5 million manufacturing jobs. The economy has created a lot of jobs, but as far as jobs of a decent wage, a union job, and in fact, there are a lot more Latinos now working in manufacturing because the Latino share of the population is up, but Latinos who lost the union, middle-class jobs that were outsourced to lower wages are making, are the, when those workers got rehired, they're making a third or a half in non-union jobs now in what is classified as manufacturing, like meatpacking or in the southeast and some of the non-union auto plants of Honda and other companies. But what we saw basically actually was with black workers, it was the pattern of the great migration and leaving the racial terror of the Jim Crow South Where did people come? To places, Midwestern cities, where there were jobs in auto manufacturing, in electronics manufacturing. And we actually saw that pattern reverse offshored in the 90s and 2000s under the trade agreement so that it wasn't just last in, first out, but the entire plants are gone. Not that they they hired the most, they fired the most recent hires. There are right. over three and a half million jobs certified just since NAFTA is lost to trade. The whole plant is gone. The entire community in Cleveland and Milwaukee and Detroit and Flint, places people came up from down south to escape poverty but racial terror, there are no more of those middle class industrial jobs. It's all gone. So when advocating to bring manufacturing back to this country, historically I've made two arguments. The first is that manufacturing creates wealth. This was Adam Smith's argument. And that that wealth is stays where the manufacturing happens. Even when the product is sold overseas, you get money for it. So basically you're making wealth. And the second argument, of course, is that it produces good-paying jobs. But now we've got right-wing think tanks that are telling us well, yeah, you may want these manufacturing jobs back, but you know, a factory that used to make cars with 30 workers per car or something or per thousand cars now does it with three workers because of robots. And those workers, by the way, no longer have unions because we've passed all these so-called right-to-work laws. And so instead of pay- making 40 bucks an hour, they're now making 12.50 an hour. So uh, what's the big deal? Why are you so exercised about trade? So I'm happy to say, having heard those lines, we actually wrote a paper taking that malarkey entirely down. Number one, investment in automation has been at the lowest level in the last 25 years in manufacturing in the like 80 years of data being kept. Number two, this notion that there's a huge productivity boost in manufacturing If you break out the sectors, as Sue Helfer, a professor at the Upjohn Institute who did this research, found out it's only in computers and it's an accounting fallacy because they changed the efficiency for faster, speedier computers. Actually, a data error is behind this notion of huge efficiency gains in manufacturing. The investment has not been there in automation. Tom, the one big change is we went from a virtual trade balance to an enormous deficit. We outsource that production. And when and if real Buy America changes happen so that there's an incentive to invest in manufacturing in the U.S., because if it's not made here, there isn't someone to buy it in the government, then we're going to see jobs coming back and investment coming back, not in all the old stuff necessarily, but in all the cutting-edge investment of the future in 
electric cars, in, in the high-tech batteries, in new materials, which will be the lighter and more resilient materials. That Buy America order, Brilliant. if we make it happen, is what that's about. That's great. Lori Wallach, it is always so informative talking with you. I really appreciate the great work you're doing as the executive director of TradeWatch.org. Lori, thanks again for dropping by today. Thank you. Great talking with you, as always. Speaking the truth to multinational corporations that want to ship your job overseas, I'd really rather you didn't know all about Tom Harbin here with you. Hey, my new book is out. The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, Reclaiming Our Democracy from the Ruling Class. In this book, I trace the history of the struggle against oligarchy from America's founding to the United States' war with the feudal confederacy to President Franklin Roosevelt's struggle against economic royalists who wanted to block the New Deal. In each of those cases, the oligarchs lost the battle. But with increasing right-wing control, we're at a crisis point. Want to know more? You can sign up for three virtual book events. Powell's virtual event in conversation with David Corton is Tuesday, February 2nd at 5 p.m. Pacific time. The Seattle Town Hall virtual event is Thursday, February 4th at 6 p.m. Pacific time. And the Books and Books virtual event in conversation with David Corton is Tuesday, February 9th at 4 p.m. Pacific time. Come support your local bookstores and hear about my new book on oligarchy. The links are all over at TomHartman.com. The memo is now out. And if this is not a smoking gun, I don't know what is a smoking gun. Christopher Miller is the guy that Donald Trump put in charge of the Department of Defense, our military. He put him in charge of the Air Force. He put him in charge of the Army. He put him in charge of the Marine Corps. He put him in charge of the Navy. He put him in charge of the Coast Guard. He put him in charge of the defense intelligence agencies. He put him in charge of everything. He was never even examined by the United States Senate. There was no Senate confirmation of his... uh, He was just the acting Secretary of Defense, thrown in at the last minute, essentially, by Donald Trump. And I think this is why. A lot of people have been wondering and speculating why all the changes of the Department of Defense between the time that, you know, Trump tried his little stunt in Lafayette Square, now Black Lives Matter Square, and, you know, gassing peaceful protesters and journalists and beating them so that he could wave a Bible around. Between then and January 6th, we've been wondering, you know, what, what's with all these changes in the civilian leadership of the Department of Defense? Well, I think we have now found out why. On January 4th, according to this memorandum, the District of Columbia National Guard requested to be available, wanted to be available to prevent exactly what happened on January 6th. You know, the intelligence was in. There's going to be a mob. It's going to be a mess. And the D.C. National Guard, the DCNG, wanted to be there. They were ready. And this is the memorandum to the Secretary of the Army, who's responsible for the D.C. National Guard, from the acting Secretary of Defense, Christopher Miller. The subject, Employment Guidance for the District of Columbia National Guard. The first paragraph, this memorandum responds to your January 4, 2021 memorandum, and by the way, this document is dated January 4th also, regarding the District of Columbia's request for District of Columbia National Guard support in response to planned demonstrations from January 5th through the 6th, 2021. And he goes on to say, without my subsequent personal authorization, in other words, unless later on I sign off, Without my subsequent personal authorization, the D.C. National Guard is not authorized the following. And then there's a bunch of bullet points, and here's what they say. The D.C. National Guard may not be issued weapons, ammunition, bayonets, batons, or ballistic protection equipment such as helmets and body armor. You may not have helmets and body armor. One of the things we know is that so many of these uh, officers who ended up in the hospital have traumatic brain injury now because they were beaten over the head. They had no helmets. Number two, you may not, this is to the National Guard of D.C., you may not interact physically with protesters except when necessary in self-defense or defense of others. 
You can't stop them from getting to the Senate and the House, essentially, is how I read that. Number three, you may not, without subsequent personal authorization, you may not employ any riot control agents. No tear gas, no pepper spray, no barricades. Number four, you may not share equipment with law enforcement agencies. So if the D.C. police need some body armor, or if they need some weaponry, or if they need some tear gas, you may not provide it to them. This is the Secretary of Defense of the United States. You tell me that this was not a planned coup to overthrow the government of the United States that Donald Trump brought this guy in on. That was number, what, five? Number six. Again, the Secretary of Defense telling the National Guard through the Secretary of the Army, you may not use intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance assets or conduct intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance or incident awareness and assessment activities. In other words, you may not pay attention to what is going on. You are absolutely forbidden from paying attention to what happens on January 6th. Next, you may not employ helicopters or any other air assets, which is you know just clear variation on you may not pay attention, you may not use what is called ISR, Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance. You may not do that unless I specifically authorize it over my signature later. You may not conduct searches, seizures, arrests, or other similar direct law enforcement activity. The way I interpret this, if you see somebody assaulting a member of Congress, you can't stop them. That's law enforcement activity. You're the National Guard. You can't do that. If you see somebody smashing windows in the Capitol to invade the... You may not stop them. If you see somebody smearing feces on the walls, as happened, if you see somebody defacing and damaging 200-year-old paintings, as happened... You may not stop them. You may not intervene. You may not, quote, conduct searches, seizures, arrests, or other similar law enforcement activity. And then finally, you may not seek support from any non-DC National Guard units. In other words, if the governor of Maryland, which actually happened, Larry Hogan, the Republican governor of Maryland, Steny Hoyer was on the phone to him while he was hiding from this mob in the Capitol. Steny Hoyer, the number two Democrat in the House, calls up his his governor, who is literally 10 miles away. I mean, you know, Maryland is. And says, send in the Maryland National Guard. And Hogan says, I can't do it. The Secretary of Defense will not allow me. And here's the memo. You may not seek support from any non-D.C. National Guard units. At all times, Christopher Miller, the acting uh, Secretary of Defense, says at all times, the D.C. National Guard will remain under the operational and administrative command and control of the commanding general of the D.C. National Guard who reports to the Secretary of Defense. That's him. Through the Secretary of the Army. You may employ the quick reaction force only as a last resort and in response to a request from an appropriate civilian authority. And please notify me on your authorization is the Tom Hartman program. It was a setup. It sure looks like it to me. What am I missing here? Do I have I got some part of this wrong? Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Amazing. Michelle in Los Angeles. Hey, Michelle, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I am a retired federal criminal and civil prosecutor, and I just wanted okay. to let you know that the defendant can assert his Fifth Amendment rights in a civil case, but the plaintiff or the prosecutor can instruct the jury to draw an adverse inference from asserting the Fifth Amendment. In other words, the jury can conclude that if the plaintiff responds, his response would be detrimental to his case. So in a criminal trial, if the defendant says, I take the fifth, I'm not going to say anything, the prosecutor may not say to the jury, well, that sure looks suspicious, doesn't it? But in a civil trial, the prosecutor is free to say that or even worse. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. So it, it could be taken as an admission of guilt. Right. Okay. Do you have any thoughts on whether the Senate can subpoena Donald Trump to appear and testify in an impeachment trial? I realize this has never been done before, but... In an ordinary civil case, if the defendant doesn't appear, then the judge can enter a default against him. So I'm not sure how the Senate would handle that. Right. This is a whole different ball of wax. Fascinating stuff. Michelle, thank you. Thank you. I, oh, you're I, welcome. I, I am Love so grateful show. to have some of this. Thank you. I'm so grateful <laughs> to have some of the smartest people in the country participating in our program on a daily basis. Brandon in Wildwood, Missouri. Hey, Brandon, what's on your mind today? Hey, yeah, man. I just want to say that uh, we have turned into everything that we said we weren't going to turn into. Every regime change or every war we've been in, you know, we replace type of government to what we're turning into. So we're pretty much, to make a long story short, one portion of the population is going to be treated like crap or government-wise, you know, with laws and things like that. And I'm very concerned. I'm retired military. I see the writings on the wall with so many of uh, my fellow veterans who are big Trump supporters. and They're being recruited. Um, Yes, listen, they really are. And I've lost two best friends last year, Tom. Two men that I knew for well over 20 years. I had to cut them off because they was hypocrites. And both of them was in the military when I did combat tours with. But I had to literally delete their phone number, let them know that I still love you, but I can't, I don't want nothing to do with you no more. This is serious. It is very, very serious. And I think every American who is not an extremist, because this is what this is. This is extremist. This is all this yep, is. You're right. But yep. thanks, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Brandon. And I'm so sorry to hear about your friends, but you are absolutely right. And and the thing that makes me crazy is when the media deals with this, like when they were interviewing Josh Hawley the other day, they deal with it like it's normal politics. Like, oh, we're having a debate here. We're having a political discussion. No, we're talking treason. On the Science Revolution, Dr. Justin A. Frank is here on the psychology of mob mentality and violence. What propels a mob? Dr. Sam Metz, a member of Mad as Hell Doctors, drops by on the need for federal legislation to allow individual states to create true statewide universal health care plans, especially single-payer plans. Plus, in geeky science, I've discovered how 11 minutes can save the quality of your life. Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you and uh, Mark in Portland. Hey, hey, Mark, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, I was thinking that Biden should probably consider setting forth a proposal to have a 50-state strategy for dealing with white supremacy and kind of modeling a federal agency like the Southern Poverty Law Center so that uh, each state in the capital 
has its own resources, its own ability to track all these right-wing militia hate groups. They can monitor voter suppression. They would have a set of troops that would be paid for in the event of an insurrection in that state. I mean, this is serious. And these white supremacists are not going away. They're just getting stronger. Biden needs to act very quickly to get this going in all 50 states. Yeah, because recruiting is happening aggressively, particularly on Facebook. In fact, Tim Cook, the president of Apple, yesterday called out Facebook and Zuckerberg on this, and God bless him for it. I think even within Facebook now, you're starting to have voices saying, wait a minute, you know, what have we wrought here? And probably Twitter and other social media as well, but Facebook seems to be the focus of most of these right-wing groups. I also think it's interesting, Mark, that the Southern Poverty Law Center is based in, uh, what, Alabama, as I recall? Right. Um, Yeah, one of those southern states, yeah, Alabama. And if you look at the state policy network, the Koch network, Charles Koch and his billionaire buddies, they have helped fund the creation of a state policy network affiliate of basically a state-based right-wing think tank to pump op-eds into newspapers and fill social media and hold events and support local politicians. They've done that in every single state. And if some left-wing billionaire wants to come along, you know, the Tom Steyer's of the world, and fund something of consequence, I think your suggestion is brilliant. Go to the Southern Poverty Law Center and say, we would like to clone you in all 50 states. So you've got the Michigan Poverty Law Center, and you've got the Wisconsin Poverty Law Center, and you've got the South Carolina Poverty Law Center, and on and on and on like that. It's a great idea. Mark, thank you very much for that. Joe in Robertsburg, West Virginia. Hey, Joe, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. I just heard this talking about Senator Manchin, and I've dealt with him quite a bit in the past. I'm retired now, but I was the uh, legislative delegate for our local and the president of our labor council here locally. And he is not the off-wing everybody thinks he is. He's He'll stick with the Democratic Party. He is for workers and, and He's not so far out there that he doesn't have his own mind. I get that. Joe Manchin, you know, seven years that Louise and I lived in D.C., we lived in a boat and a marina in Washington, D.C., and Joe Manchin lived in a boat two docks over. We never socialized, but, you know, I saw him a fair amount. You know, he was around, and you kind of keep track of what's going on and who's what, and and in a small community like that, word travels, and, you know, it's, and he and I know people, a number of people in common, and I'm not a big fan of his daughters, you know, jacking up the price of insulin and stuff like that, but as a person and probably as a legislator, he's popular in West Virginia. He's a decent person. He's just wrong on the filibuster. And so I'm not asking people to call him up and scream at him. You know, just if you think that the filibuster should be eliminated, you know, call his office and let him know. But Joe, thank you. Yeah, thanks for the call defending Joe. And from West Virginia, in fact. Sandra in Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Sandra, what's on your mind today? Hey, well, I was just thinking that if you live in any town or city and you walk down the street and a little shop has a nice big Nazi flag displayed and insurrection is great, you know, and I'm for it and that sort of a signage, you have every right to walk right on by and not shop there. And I'm thinking as much as we are a an online society anymore, we have the right to not shop at states that elect people who are insane. So don't buy there. Don't shop there. Don't travel there. Don't stay in their hotels. Don't go to their theme parks. Go somewhere else where they elect people who have a little bit of common sense, who are not crazy. And eventually, it won't take you, I mean, it won't happen immediately, but eventually they will start to notice, uh, we're not getting the financial support we used to have. Yeah. I I think this happened to Goya products after Ivanka Trump intentionally violated the the Hatch Act by, you know, doing her little thing in the White House. And it's happening to the MyPillow guy, too, although, you know, Uh obviously he's he's advertising like there's no tomorrow on Fox News right now. He's got his own supporters. But I actually bought one of his pillows like, you know, five years ago when it was a hot new thing. And I thought, well, you know, quite a claim. I'll try it out. You know, it wasn't any big deal. I mean, basically, it's a foam rubber pillow with, you know, the foam ripped into little tiny pieces and they're just a little larger than normal foam pillow pieces that's all but yeah. uh, apparently a lot yeah. of people are just saying okay that's it no <laughs> no more yeah. my pillow and, 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 that's I, what we and can the one that i bought from we all have gone. that power 
Yeah, we yeah, all have I'm that with you. power. I'm with you, Sandra. But let's not make the mistake of thinking that economic boycotts are going to turn any great tide. We still need the power of legislation. It's the place where smart people get their news. The Hartman Report is a free daily podcast, seven days a week, and you can find our entire three-hour podcast over at TomHartman.com. Tom Hartman here with you. Well, the uh, congresswoman from Crazyville, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the video came out yesterday of her following David Hogg around, you know, yelling at him and telling him that she had a gun. He was one of the survivors of the Parkland massacre, where, I, as I recall, 12 people were murdered by a crazed person with a gun. And she was apparently alleging that that was another false flag operation. Wednesday night, she held a, a town hall and said only questions that have been submitted in writing in advance will be asked of her. She would not allow any questions from the audience spontaneously. So this local news crew shows up, and the reporter with the news crew asks her a question out loud, which you're not allowed to do at her town halls. So she has the sheriff's deputy threaten them with arrest, right? Threaten them with arrest. But it gets weirder. It turns out that on her Facebook page two years ago, you know, when the wildfires were ripping through California and people were dying left and right, she suggested that the reason these wildfires were happening in California was because Governor Brown was using a space laser to start the fire. I'm not making this up. That Governor Brown was using a space laser to start these fires in California to clear the way for a high-speed rail line. She said it because of this partnership between PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, and uh, the SolarEnn, which is a renewable energy company. She said, if they are beaming the sun's energy back to Earth, I'm sure they wouldn't ever miss a transmitter receiving station, right? What would that look like anyway? A laser beam or a light beam coming down to Earth, I guess? Could it cause a fire? That wouldn't look so good. Right. So here we have, you know, representative from Crazyville. And how did the Republicans respond to this woman who said that a bullet in the forehead would be an appropriate response to Nancy Pelosi? How did the Republicans respond to this? They just put her on the Education Committee. This is what Nancy Pelosi said, she said, assigning Green to the Education Committee when she has mocked the killing of little children at Sandy Hook Elementary School, when she has mocked the killing of teenagers at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, what could they be thinking? Or is thinking too generous a word for what they're doing? It's absolutely appalling, said Nancy Pelosi, and I think the focus has to be on the Republican leadership of the House of Representatives. That would be Mr. McCarthy and Mr. Scalise. Kevin McCarthy, who spent the day down at Mar-a-Lago with Donald Trump. Steve Scalise, who ran for Congress from Louisiana on a slogan of David Duke without the hood. Somebody, uh, Steve Scalise, says, uh, I've condemned violent rhetoric on both sides. (laughs) Right. Okay. Anyhow, back to your phone calls here. Fred in uh, Bremerton, Washington, listening to KCBS. Hey, Fred, what's up? Uh, Yeah, good morning about the paramilitary people that seem to be all engrossed in storming the Capitol. I really want to see the draft come back. I was drafted. I spent, uh, what, four years, 11 months, 28 days on the flight deck of an aircraft carrier. It didn't really ruin me, but I became more involved in the government and how it was functioning because I had a piece of my tail, you know, in the fight. So you end up thinking differently. I really believe also that since perestroika, we got a lot of people here from East European countries that have a real different bent on what they think democracy is all about. But I really think they need to go back to the draft, Tom. I really do. I agree, Fred. I agree. And there, you get there a better cross-section be a- of America. Right. There used to be a congressman from New York who was on our program on a fairly regular basis. Charlie Rangel used to come on this show all the time, who represented Harlem in the U.S. House of Representatives or that part of New York City. And this was his thing. I mean, you know, he was a, I believe he was a Marine. He was a combat veteran from World War II. And his point was the draft brought us all together. 
the draft, you know, it threw everybody in, and, and and he wanted to bring back the draft with no exceptions, right, or, or at least no unreasonable exceptions, so that rich guys like George W. Bush couldn't get out of it, basically. And I agree, but I would like to add to it, I think we should do it the way Germany does, or at least the way Germany did when I lived there back in the 80s. And that is that you have to give one year of service to your country. If you choose, if you are opposed to military service, you may do that year of service in a non-military venue. In other words, you can volunteer for a year in a hospital or as a teacher's aide or something like that, but you have to leave your hometown. You've got to go someplace else to do it. They've got a system set up for this. And what it does is it expands people's horizons. It it kind of wakes them up to the rest of the world, gets them to know other people who aren't like them. and it would be a rite of passage. I mean, if this happened right out of high school, and then in exchange for that year of service, whether it's in the military or in a hospital, in exchange for that, right. you get a free four-year college education or a free couple of years of trade school and a, mm-hmm. and a, and a subsidy mm-hmm. in, in the first year of your new job. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. uh, you know Americans would jump at it, Fred. Yeah. And yeah, I do believe also it would weed out a lot of derelicts, the people we're seeing right now. What do you mean by derelicts? Derelicts, people that don't go by the rules. I like to see some of these people that attack the Capitol. I like to see them, you know, for who they really are. Like that guy that got in, uh, who are you, from Vegas with the yellow hair, whatever that guy's name was. I mean, now there's yeah. some real Looney Tunes out there. Yeah. And you put them yeah. in a uniform, you put them through basic, you can weed them out. Right. And instead, what we're doing is we've turned our military into the job of last resort as the place that people who are stuck in poverty go. So our military doesn't represent a cross section of America like it used to, which is really unfortunate. I'm, I'm completely with you, Fred. We need to bring back the draft. I know there are some people who go crazy when I say that, but, you know, tough. Uh, I do agree, though, that they're for people who have a conscientious objection to military service or to the military in general. There should be a civilian alternative, and there should be a reward for it. You can do multiple things all at once with this. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is American Cipher, Bo Bergdahl and the U.S. Tragedy in Afghanistan by Farwell and Ames. I'm reading from Chapter 4, titled An Army of One. Two years after the incident at Cape May, Bo's failure still ate at him. He never told his parents what had happened. The day they shipped me out, a thought occurred to me, and it stayed in my mind whenever I thought about the Coast Guard, he told General Dahl, and that was that I wanted to fix that. Those who knew him knew Bo was struggling with something. He would never say what it was, but the tension was plain. He spent more and more time in his room at Anna's. There was no bed, no couch, no TV, but on his days off from work, he stayed there, sometimes for days at a time. Fontaine and her other new roommate heard him yelling at himself, I can't believe you did that! That was so stupid! Some of his friends worried, but Bo never complained, and around men in particular, he carried himself with stoic severity. Women saw a more concerning aspect. In the Harrison's kitchen, one of Kim's friends grabbed his hand, flipped his forearm over to reveal the neat rows of cuts. You have such nice arms, she said. What the heck are you doing to yourself? I'm getting ready, he told her. What are you getting ready for? Pain. Bo, what on earth are you talking about? I'm just getting ready. Enough time had passed where I got uncomfortable again with not doing something that was making a difference, he told Dahl years later. His parents put him in touch with their pastor from Boise, Phil Proctor, who was ministering with seminary students in northeastern Uganda. Bo told his parents it sounded interesting. He could go to East Africa and teach villagers self-defense techniques. But the timing didn't work out. All the seminary spots were taken. That spring, Bo's seeking came full circle. He remembered meeting another Coast Guard washout who told him that if he wanted to, he could re-enlist. The Army was stressed for new, warm bodies. His family knew he'd been thinking about it. Whatever you do, don't join the Army, his sister and Albrecht told him. It was a bit of the old Army-Navy rivalry coming through, but Skye also believed that the Navy took care of its own in a way that the Army never had. His mother agreed, but didn't think Bo would actually enlist. Days later, when she saw him on the highway driving back from Twin Falls in his motorcycle, she knew that he had. At the Army recruiting station, Bo was a young man in a hurry. He told the recruiter that he wanted to become a scout, a soldier who takes risky missions to track down enemy positions. The recruiter told him there were no more slots available for scouts, but that he had three openings in the infantry, which would fill up fast if Bergdahl didn't act quick. He offered him a $5,000 signing bonus to sweeten the deal. 
In the spring of 2008, the Army had lowered its recruiting standards to levels not seen since the end of the draft. Five years earlier, at the start of the Iraq War, 94% of new recruits had high school diplomas. By 2005, that number had dropped to 71%. New soldiers with what the Army defined as Category 4 intelligence, those who scored in the 30th percentile or below, were accepted. As Iraq burned, their numbers rose, rising from just six one-hundredths of a percent of new recruits and up to 4%. Kim and her brother took it much worse. Mark Ferris's heart sank at the news. The last they had talked, Bo was planning a two-week wilderness trip in the Yellowstone River in a sea kayak. It was a wild idea and would be a rough trip, but Ferris thought it could work. The Army would not work. If there was a human being unfit for the Army who should never have joined the Army, it was Bo, said Ferris. He was naive, idealistic, good-spirited, a very gentle person, and a gentle soul. Anna Fontaine was equally concerned. Why was this a better idea than the Coast Guard? You tried this before. It didn't work. Why are you putting yourself through this again? Bo told her he was older now and had matured. I was naive then, he said. I now know what to expect. Anna had grown up in the South near Army bases and told him he wouldn't like the rough culture. It didn't matter. He was dead set on it, she said. He was gung-ho. Her parting words to him were, keep your head down, don't be a hero. And the book is American Cipher, Bo Bergdahl and the U.S. Tragedy in Afghanistan by Farwell and Ames. Nick in Chicago. Hey, Nick, what's up? Hey, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. You mentioned about Marjorie Taylor Greene taking up, uh, getting appointed to the Education Committee, and there's a bill right now going through to try and expel her. And I'm just thinking, mm-hmm. I'm just thinking moves ahead. Say that doesn't happen, and they try to censure her. Could that censure strip her of her committee appointments, like it did with Steve King? I don't know. I don't know if that's part of the rules or if that was attached to the censure resolution against Steve King. I'm not that much of a, of a House rules wonk, Nick. I'm sorry. But I consider it unlikely, frankly, that she will be expelled. Uh, I, I do. I mean, that's a I radical do too, step. And I, I do, too, because I don't think they're going to get enough Republicans to do it other than Adam Kinzinger. I'm not sure they'll get enough. I'm not sure all the Democrats would be on board for it either, because when you expel a member, you are basically saying to all the people who voted for that member, sorry, you know, your your vote doesn't count. I think the, the inclination is more to expose what a crazy she is and get a good, strong Democratic candidate to run against her in her district or even, you know, allow the Republican Party to primary her, although it looks like, you know, large parts of the Republican Party have gone full tilt boogie into la-la land, into conspiracy world. But, you know, I think you're onto something. Nick, thanks for the call. Howard in New York City. Hey, Howard, what's up? Yeah, hi. I think one of the biggest problems that the Democrats have is a lack of a communication network. For example, I mean, Biden has a full plate. Suppose over the next six, seven months, he really does finish the uh, inoculations. Well, Fox News in the right hand, they could have Trump take credit for it. So let me give you a, a wonderful statement by Mark Twain about facts and transparency and reality. Twain said that an optimist sees a glass half full, pessimist sees a glass half empty, and a realist sees a glass half of what it's supposed to be. Now, <laughs> what I'm saying is, I like it. They went, yeah. They, I mean, they had the right had heavy hitters, real players, and we don't have anybody working on a communications network. Many started this years ago with Rupert Murdoch and Ailes, the Koch brothers, the Mercer brothers, the order, the oil companies. They have uh, 500. I mean, Fox has 500 AM FM stations, 1500 smaller. What do we have? We have nothing who's working on it. And so whatever the right says is what the right's going to believe. So my idea, and I don't know if it's it's realistic, is i got to think, how do we pull away 10 or 20 million out of the 73 million from publicans, I call them, so that we have a chance to deprogram them? Why can't our heavy hitters, like Buffett and Gates and Bezos and Soros, why can't they form 
equivalent size stations, small stations, big stations. Yeah. Howard, you are singing my song. I'm, I'm sorry to, 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 to stop you there, guys. I want to I get another caller in before the end of the hour, but I wrote an article in The Nation magazine about two months ago saying exactly what you're saying and, and giving, you know, case in verse or whatever the phrase is for that. Ron in Buffalo, New York. Hey, Ron, what's on your mind? Yeah, you know, you read that memo, and it reminded me, I wonder what you think of this, of the John Kennedy assassination in that we have reports that the 112th Airborne Division was told to stand down and not assist the Secret Service with crowd control. The Dallas police were told not to interact with the Secret Service. Uh, it, it, it sounds an awful lot like that, only a, I guess you'd say a macrocosm of what happened in Dallas that day. Yeah, it reminds me more of... Johnson's instructions to Earl Warren, you know, that there are some areas you're not going to tread. But that was because they, at that time, they thought that Oswald was acting under instructions from Fidel Castro, and they were afraid that if that got out, it would start World War III. But uh, I'm with you, Ron. It it, it smells like a a cover-up to me. Bill in LaSalle, Michigan. Bill, you have the last minute. Tom, if you look at any pictures of Trump, he's never standing behind protective glass. However, on January 6th, he knew that that crowd was armed and dangerous. He's standing behind protective class, bulletproof right, class. Bulletproof class. He knew what yeah. was going to happen. He arranged the whole thing. He needs to go to criminal charges. The impeachment doesn't matter. He needs to be tried for sedition. Yeah, thank I'm you. with you. I'm totally with you. Thank you, Bill. And not just him. I mean, apparently he's got a whole crew with him. And I want to know what happened in that meeting at Trump Tower or at uh, the Trump Hotel the day before on January 5th when these people got together, got together to conspire, you know, to, to, to make this thing, apparently to make this thing happen. I want to know what the hell happened. And I hope the FBI is all over this. We'll be back same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Get out there, get active. Tag, you're it. Have a great afternoon. Be good to somebody today listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.